Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today's guest is Eleanor Cleghorn. Eleanor is a writer, researcher, and the author of the book Unwell Woman, A Journey Through Medicine and Myth in a Man-Made World. Eleanor's background is in feminist culture and history, and I was excited to sit down and talk with her today. Her book explores the misdiagnosis and mistreatment of women's health issues throughout history, starting with her own experience of chronic illness. Eleanor's symptoms were dismissed by doctors for many years before she was diagnosed with lupus, prompting her to take a deeper look at the ways medicine has failed women. It was fascinating to hear about the origins of the medical industrial complex starting in ancient Greece and how those ideas and attitudes persisted over time, even to the present day. Let's get right to my chat with Eleanor Cleghorn. Your book, Unwell Women, which I love the title because I think it's important to present this idea of a lack of wellness when we think about just the construct we're living inside of and almost in a way how we've been deprived the opportunity for, you know, an optimal existence due to the lack of history that we have around or shared knowledge we have around women's bodies, especially when it comes to medical research. And so the book really talks about mistreatment and misdiagnosis within sexual reproductive health. And I'd love to hear about your journey within the medical industrial complex and you know how long it took for you to find out what was actually going on with your body and how that tied into your journey of writing this book. 
So I was diagnosed in 2010 with uh, systemic lupus erythematosus, which is the most common form of the disease lupus. It's the, that is the form of lupus we think of when we talk about lupus. And lupus affects around, you know, 90% of sufferers globally are born female. So how, you know, first time female at birth. And um, I was diagnosed with this disease after developing a heart condition postpartum. So I'd had my baby about nine weeks previously, and I got very sick. I became very unwell with pain in my chest, pain in my shoulders, very, just really, really fatigued. It was the most unwell I've ever felt. And I put down a lot of these symptoms to early motherhood, to having a newborn baby, to feeding, to carrying. I had a toddler as well at the time. And I really kind of internalized these symptoms for, for longer than I should have done. And when I eventually went to my GP, I was told immediately to go to a &E, and it turned out that I had fluid building up around my heart. Now, going back a few weeks to when my baby was born and then back a bit further throughout my pregnancy, my son had a heart abnormality called congenital heart block. And one of the only known causes of this abnormality is that something is happening in the mother's immune system that's crossing the placental barrier and sort of effectively attacking the fetal heart. But thankfully, my baby was born healthy and well, you know, we had a difficult, rocky pregnancy, but he was born healthy and well. But none of the doctors really explained what this immune issue might mean for my own health. So when I developed the heart condition, it was really mysterious. The doctors didn't kind of look back and put together these pieces of the puzzle. And it took a rheumatologist who has knowledge of the multi-symptomatic nature of autoimmunity to really figure out what was going on. And from then on, I was referred for specialist care. And I've had excellent care from the NHS in England since then. But previous to that, so all throughout my 20s, since I was about sort of 21, 22, I'd experienced what I now understand are the characteristic symptoms of lupus. So these include joint pain. I had a lot of swelling, a lot of edema in my joints, also migraines, nausea, photosensitivity, and then mental health issues, I think, associated with being in so much pain. And whenever I went to the doctor to try and find some answers, I was always dismissed, belittled, undermined. My pain was written off. My sort of understanding, my intuition about what was happening in my body was just not validated, not legitimized. And I was never referred for any further diagnostic tests, never giving any complex blood work. So these symptoms, you know, had this history of medical dismissal, but until I was diagnosed, with the autoimmune condition, I didn't understand this as such. I didn't understand that what I had, was going through at the time in my early 20s was effectively medical gaslighting that we're now so much more cognizant of at the moment. You know, we're talking so much more about the way that gender impacts and the intersectionalities therein impact our healthcare. But at that time, I didn't know. I didn't know how to advocate. I didn't know what I was asking for. So the diagnosis really made me change my perception of my history and understand that I did know what was happening in my body. I, my intuition was right. And that was really what sort of prompted me to look back through medicine's history to try and sort of expand the scope of what I was thinking about around my own body and condition to other conditions that occupy the similar space in medicine at the moment. So other chronic conditions, 
that are poorly understood that tend to affect you know people born female more than male bodies and so when you talk about the history that you delved into and started to almost in a sense reconstruct to make sense of your own experience i'm really curious about what you learned because when i think about just the deficit around information when it comes to people that are born female and the health issues that might be important for them to know about for example most people don't realize that heart issues are actually the number one killer of women there's just not enough understanding around the kind of cardiologic complexities that women have because we haven't done any research. And so when I think about the kind of patriarchal and misogynistic foundation that medicine is built on, it's really interesting to kind of hear what you called out in the book and the fact that when you went back to ancient Greece and, you know, and looked at what the father of modern medicine you know, Hippocrates brought forward around medical practices, he emphasized that women's bodies and the illnesses that are related to their bodies need to be dealt with very differently from those of men. And so I'm, I'm fascinated that that actually was a part of the genesis of the medical world. And yet here we are with that, like kind of main foundation never really being realized. So what are your thoughts around that? I think that's a really fascinating point and I, it's something that I come back to a lot in that at the beginnings of what we would call our Western evidence-based scientific medical canon, the, the so-called founding fathers of medicine, so I'm talking here about the authors of tracts like the Hippocratic Corpus from where we get our Hippocratic Oath, who were the, really the first physicians who were writing in a tradition that we might call like bench to bedside now. So looking at symptoms, treating people as individuals, studying the causes and causes of illness rather than applying mythological or religious sort of ideas to where illness came from. So they were really focused on bodies and the ancient Greeks did have very specific ideas about gender. You know, they, they conceived of women and men or, or what we would now think as biological sexes on a sort of on more or less a continuum they had a different idea about biological sex than we do now but they did have very clear ideas about gender and in terms of women's bodies the function of women's bodies in ancient greece was of course primarily reproductive and so a lot of what the ancient greeks were doing was applying social ideas to women's bodies in order to better understand their illnesses. And it made sense to them to understand a woman as primarily reproductive or the organs that belong to a woman as being reproductive and therefore as being socially useful and almost not of her, you know, not of her autonomy, not of her agency. So yeah, you're completely right. Hippocrates and the diseases of women, which is one of the earliest tracts on women's medicine, does state that women need these separate modes of healing. And he states that often when physicians treat women in the same way that they treat men, that women end up getting sicker and dying because the methodologies of healing don't necessarily apply. So he was making it clear that we need to study the diseases of female bodies differently, but he was also 
maintaining that women do not know how to intuit what is happening in their bodies. They don't know how to communicate their pain and that their testimony around their own bodies is not necessarily to be trusted. He talks a lot about how women have a lot of shame around their bodies and that they are unable to properly articulate their symptoms to a man. So when he's saying that we need separate approaches to healing for male and female bodies, he's, there's a bit of a double-edged sword happening there because he's implying that women need the male physician, that paternalistic patriarchal authority in order for them to sort of translate the messages that a female body is trying to communicate because a woman is not capable of speaking to her body or speaking for her body. And I think that's something that we is, of course, so ingrained now in our gender biases around medical care that women are not seen as reliable narrators or people who are femme presenting are not seen as reliable narrators of their bodies or of their pain and that the way these more sort of feminized let's say ways of talking about bodies and pain more subjective more full of feeling more intuitive are culturally and socially distrusted and this is something that we can see rooted right back even when those ancient Greek physicians were suggesting that we need more humane and as it were sort of gender specific approaches to medicine. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You know, it's fascinating this paradoxical framework you're bringing up when we're talking about Hippocrates and, you know, this idea that women do need their own kind of granular approach and specification around their care, but then they also are not efficient narrators of their own lived experience, which I think is a really interesting cultural tension that Hippocrates is presenting in the sense that back then, men and women were not equal and you know women were not given space to be very verbal about any of their experiences so it's in a way i almost want to posit this idea that obviously we know in our day and age that that is not true but back then i think the structures the power structures of play limited i think access potentially to even have visibility into how women do speak and how they do communicate. And so it's almost, it's, again, this is all 
conjecture somehow because I was not there. But it's really interesting that he was trying to to repair something that was already broken back then, but not really having the right tools or even the right kind of impetus around how to repair that. So it's it's actually really fascinating, which is why I think this book is so compelling. And it really, it holds those complexities or those paradoxes really well. So thinking about another paradox, which is this feeling that if you, share what's going on with your body with your care provider this idea of medical gaslighting and this idea that you know your symptoms can be brushed off as psychosomatic i'd love to hear about you know what you've seen from your research and your own lived experience around misdiagnoses and hysteria and you know what are what's actually the the foundation or the history behind the kind of medical gaslight medical gaslighting and misdiagnosis that takes place for women so after we have the ancient greeks proclamations about women's bodies especially around the uterus or womb we have these very foundational ideas that really persist throughout the centuries that the female organs of female anatomy what's going on underneath the quote-unquote female skin is beyond a woman's own control. It's beyond her control. The organs are destined for reproduction. Therefore, in order for her to be healthy, she needs to fulfill that imperative, that biological and social imperative of childbearing, of conceiving, of marital sex in order to maintain this healthy state. And so I think the roots of hysteria, which of course we're all familiar with, if not as a sort of diagnostic behemoth, really popular in the 19th century that really sort of undermined women's sense of their bodies and pain. Or we know it as a slur for an overly emotional woman, you know you're being hysterical. The roots of hysterical or the hysterical illness really come from this sense that a woman hasn't got control over what her body is doing and therefore she is not necessarily able to speak about her body as if her body were her own. It's always sort of mm. somehow deferred from her ownership, from her control, from her autonomy. And as theories about the uterus or womb became more sort of involved, more outlandish as the centuries went on, you see ideas about hysteria being linked to, not just to the reproductive organs, but to the nervous system and the brain. And there was a really real sense in around sort of 16th, 17th century, that there was an intimate consent or sympathy between the female reproductive organs and the mind. And that there was this, because of this close consent or sympathy, if a woman was not performing this social duty of childbearing, and that could include, you know, not being of marriageable age yet, or of being, you know, going through the menopause or being older, you know, that she was going to then influence her mind because her uterus wasn't healthy. So you get this real connection between the physiological and the psychological, the way that these two sort of elements of the body are in concert and sort of influencing each other really profoundly. And then hysteria comes around in the sort of 17th century where it's articulated as a set of symptoms 
And these included almost any symptom you could think of that might befall a female body, from pain to fainting, to palpitations, to you know, a sense of suffocating in the throat, including also menstrual health issues. And this link, this, there was this really profound link between the idea that a woman's overly irrational, overly emotional, erratic kind of sensibility could profoundly influence her body and vice versa. Because of course, along with women's bodies being being perceived as erratic and unruly and needing a sort of patriarchal taming, women's emotional and intellectual sense was marked out as inferior because it was seen as susceptible, as delicate, as fragile, because women were not perceived to have enough rational control to stave off certain diseases in the way that men were perceived to be able to do. So from this 17th century idea that hysteria is a sort of bodily and mental, so it's an aspect of mental and physical health, you get a sort of convergence of the idea that when women speak of pain, they speak of their bodies, that what they're actually speaking of is some sort of emotional rupture, some sort of emotional problem issue. So that's really what happens. You get this sort of deferring of pain into the emotional space and this happens over a couple of centuries until we get to the 19th century with the emergence of professional gynecology gynecology being a gentleman's discipline in the us and over here in the uk and this idea really persists that primarily where a woman's pain where a woman's bodily pain is coming from is from her mind and that she is capable really of inducing or inciting physical pain and other symptoms with her erratic emotions and that's of course something again that we're still really grappling with the residues of this today and how did you see that history play out in your own lived experience when you were working with care providers so I saw it in my early 20s when I would go, you know, there was an episode when I was about 22 and I had this really awful kind of bilateral ankle pain that went on for too long and it was stopping me from walking properly. And I sort of tried everything, you know, every supplement I could think of, dietary shit, little tweaks and changes to my diet, strapping up my ankle, you know, everything I could think of to try and sort of rectify this because when I went to the doctor about pain, I was always told that there was something about my femaleness, about my cis femaleness that was exacerbating or causing this pain. So rather than see me as a human who is in pain, I was seen as a young cis female who was anxious and probably drinking too much and probably, you know, not sleeping enough and probably being hormonal. Like it was always the, the stereotypical notions that our culture too often holds about what, you know, a young cis female is. It's a, this is a hormonal creature. This is an anxious creature. This is a partying creature. So I was never seen as human, but it was always the pain. The, there was this real sense that my pain was not something that was medically legitimate or physiologically legitimate. My pain was something that I was either creating with my mind or that was just, you know, something I had to deal with because I was, you know, existed in, in a female body. And this is how I saw it really play out. And I've seen it even since, you know, since I've had 
my confirmed diagnosis, I've had oftentimes been to GPs and left in tears because I'm in a lot of pain and I just, you know, half the time you just want to talk about this and have this recognized rather than necessarily be put on another medication regimen. But then they've said things like, well, it's not really your disease, is it? Because your blood seem fine. It's not really your, you know, you're not in active lupus. And this suggestion always, this haunting, the spectre of you're creating it, you're emotional, your emotional relationship to your illness is the root of this pain, not this biological, immunological reaction phenomenon that is just happening, you know. It's everything, the way that that pain is interpreted, the way that pain is judged, is always filtered through these social, cultural, ingrained ideas about who I am, you know, what I represent rather than who I am. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to NordicKnots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. In your research, how did you see women fighting back against the sexism? And what are your suggestions in terms of how to navigate working with a care provider who isn't seeing you and isn't seeing your pain and is really saying, if you got more sleep or, you know, maybe if you took better care of yourself, we could, you could move past this. I think that women throughout the history of medicine and medicine is a very long history and Unwell Women really focuses a lot on patriarchal myth-making about female bodies and about, you know, people who live as women and Although oftentimes that can be a very distressing and quite depressing history, I think what I really tried to do throughout the book was show that there have always been these really important pockets of resistance, but it's that these pockets of resistance are not necessarily the stories that we are told, and they're not necessarily the forms of knowledge that are filtered down to form the basis of knowledge about diseases and illnesses that are, you know, woefully misunderstood today. So... Of course, medicine is a male-dominated practice in terms of both practicing medicine and in terms of creating knowledge, the kind of knowledge that we would call kind of medical history. And it wasn't until the 19th century that women were able to formally occupy professional positions as physicians. 
and they you know they had a huge struggle often to gain um, the same kind level of medical education as men did and of course you get enormous pushback when women do enter these spaces and often they're you know some of the pioneers of women's medicine they were really you know entering this space on a platform of women need the care of women and not just because it needs to level the gender playing field in the profession but because women have perhaps a more empathetic understanding a more intimate understanding of just what it means to be you know to have a female body and feel pain in that body and have more of a sense of what it means to exist in a gendered way in, in society so so we get that we get these very formalized ways in which women fought back but i think some of the most empowering moments in which women fought back are really you know grassroots based and to do with activism and forming knowledge for women by women and you see this a lot in the health movements and the feminist health movements sort of post-wars post-second world war um going into the kind of 60s especially around moments like you know the the invention and the marketing of the contraceptive pill for example and you have these kind of galvanic energies of health feminism where women were gathering together in order to question not just medicines hold over their lives but the narratives around female bodies and female minds that were sort of biologically rooted and were also kind of imp impacting women's place in society and the feminist health movement was a huge movement that went from the 60s up through the 80s but we still see you know we have the fantastic legacy of it now from that we i think have generated more knowledge about how to care a more human understanding about how to care and about what we get when we are activists for our own bodies and for other bodies i mean this was especially important for black women for ethnically diverse women this was hugely important moment because coming together creating community and speaking in a culture that would prefer women not to speak about their bodies is in, is hugely you know that has always changed the playing field i think about you know the roots of organizations like the national black women's health imperative which came from grassroots activism it came from people caring for themselves their communities and not just that but creating knowledge mm. holding conferences creating self-help clinics you know supporting and sort of circumventing these obstacles of access and affordability to create you know systems of care that did actually care and i think this is a hugely important moment to remember when we think now about the issues that we're grappling with in terms of health care equality in that there is power there's been huge power in activism and in speaking and speaking about our bodies in order to circumvent that you know culture that would just prefer us to stay silent and be spoken to yeah it's very much the work that i'm doing and my team is doing at loom in the sense of when women actually design the intervention and are able to call out what's truly important 
it really makes a big difference in terms of what the education experience is like. And I think health education about our bodies is so key, which is why this book is so exciting and so important and timely because we have to go back to understand how we got here and to also be able to create things that are going to help us get out of where we are. And so there's so much power to, you know, again, with this paternalistic power structure that exists inside the, you know, th that exists inside medicine, oftentimes women don't feel like they have a sense of true ownership over what's happening in their bodies and that their individual anecdotal experience actually is important. But it is because we have no real research about us. And so when you're talking about your lupus symptoms to another woman who might be around your age and stage, that's it, that's actually valuable. <laughs> that two-way discussion is deeply valuable. It's going to be more than you'll find on Google or anywhere else. And so there is a deep need to bring women together to have conversations about all of these different, you know, potential experiences that can happen in their body. And I think, you know, it brings me also to want to ask you, or at least just to kind of sit with the statistic that, you know, autoimmune diseases in women are tenfold what they are in men. And I'm really interested in your kind of thought around that statistic, because I think in terms of what are we fighting back against, it's not just women having access to contraception or, you know, having better insights about menopause. Those things are extremely important. But I think what is burgeoning here is this autoimmune issue and trying to kind of create more conversation around that. I mean, autoimmunity is of course, fascinating to me because I am an autoimmune sufferer. I live with, I travel with autoimmunity every day. And autoimmune diseases are amongst the chronic diseases that are rising globally at exponential rates. And there's very, really very little scientific biomedical understanding about why this is. And there are many, many unanswered questions about autoimmunity, especially in the intersections of gender and race. I mean, lupus is you know 90% of sufferers of lupus were you know, born female, but it there is huge disparities in terms of disease outcomes and severity of symptoms with Black, Asian, Latinx, and ethnically diverse women. Mm -hmm. And this is something that there is no conclusive knowledge about. And what I find or what makes me, you know, infuriates me, but also something that I hope to contribute to addressing in a meaningful way is that it's because you know we the blind spots in our medical knowledge come from the fact that historically the bodies of women the bodies of women of color the bodies of marginalized genders we have not been valued or prioritized in terms of the creation of knowledge and that's not just in terms of you know big research grants that look at ourselves and explore our autoimmune and study our immunological assays and all that kind of stuff. It's also because our experience of illness and our experience in the world has not been prioritized and valued. When I was looking back at the sort of some of the earliest studies in lupus of lupus patients that were done in the kind of 40s and 50s, because autoimmunity is a fairly new concept. It's only really been in the sort of 
medical understanding in the realm of medical understanding since the 50s. So when I was looking back to some of these early histories of autoimmunity, it was really fascinating to me to read some case studies in which there were, you know, these charts of symptoms that women who ended up being diagnosed with lupus were shown to have. And oftentimes what you see in these charts are, you know, years of misdiagnosis, years of assumptions that pain is actually a mental health condition, years of, you know, pointless and barbaric mental health treatments, including electroshock, including prefrontal lobotomies, because nobody was privileging that patient's experience, that patient's account of her body, that patient's testimony as valuable knowledge. And I feel that that is what's missing. You know, we can do, we can inject all the money and research funding we like into trying to figure out, you know, is it true that the female immune system is actually more, you know, aggressive than the male immune system? You know, is there a genetic reason why more people of color get autoimmune diseases? We can do that forever, but if we don't privilege experience and, and really value lived experiences of illness intersectionally as a form of knowledge, we cannot expand our knowledge of these diseases and we cannot apply a kind of ethical conduct to the care of people who live with these life-limiting illnesses and are being you know, systematically let down. And you see it, I, I feel like, you know, autoimmunity is a crisis, but it's also, if it's responded to right in the future, can be an opportunity for a different kind of medical thinking, for a different kind of approach to how we think about what a disease is and what an illness experience is. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And thinking about this advent of new medical thinking or new model of thinking within the medical space, what do you think care providers can do to combat this challenging history and to actually push back on medical oppression, both for women and also for people of color? I think that quite often when we talk about you know, medical neglect, medical mistreatment, medical oppression and its historical basis, you know, it's important always to remember that we're talking about a systemic issue. We're talking about systems that need to be completely re reconstructed. You know, the system fails 
the most vulnerable, the most marginalised always. You know, it privileges cis white men in terms of knowledge, in terms of care. It's always done that, it's always felt. So we need to kind of change the system fundamentally. You know, I personally have had some incredible care. You know, we have socialised medicine in the UK. I've had incredible care from women. I've had great care from men too. And I think at an individual level, I do see healthcare practitioners who do push back, who are aware, who are cognizant of what we are up against when we speak about our bodies, what it means, you know, to be a woman speaking about her body, to be a black woman speaking about her body, to be a black non-binary person. Like you see it, you know, you do see this awareness, this nuance, this sense of real humanity. You know, you're a human, I meet you as a human. But I feel like there should be much more emphasis in that kind of consulting dynamic, in that doctor-patient dynamic, on humanness first. Mm. You know, we, we, there's the obstacles that gender biases, that racial biases place between, you know, a patient and her care provider need to be sort of, you know, taken, weeded out and they need to be properly understood. And I don't think that can be done with sort of placatory kind of bias training, although that could help. But I feel like it needs, you know, a complete sort of reimagining of what that patient doctor encounter is and how, you know, people who are unwell want to be, need to be seen as human first. And of course, that is difficult because there are certain instances in medicine where, you know, biological sex does make a difference. You know, it does impact, but everything else is cultural, right? Everything else is social. And there's, there's this real importance, I think, on, you know, we need to humanize it. And there are some great practitioners who do it. I think that by, you know, we're in this brilliant moment where I feel like we're in a reckoning with this. I do. I feel like even in the 10 years since my diagnosis, that, you know, culture has changed so much and people are speaking to these issues in a way they never have before. And I think that is where real change comes from. Speaking and then in terms of the healthcare establishment, listening. Mm. I agree. We are definitely in a reckoning. And, you know, the reckoning also, I think, is how we are talking about our bodies as women. And, you know, I really want to hear from you. How do you start having these conversations with other people in your life? I think there is a lot of stigma around talking about how your body's not working. You know, I think for me and you, you know, we have built up a resilience around that and have also found a sense of freedom in really being outspoken and, and clear about our, our, our lived experiences in our body. I remember when I, you know, found out that I had fibroids, you know, I took my time before I was really public about it. But when I was, I, I, I knew how important that was going to be for me to just not be holding it all alone. And also for women to be able to learn through my experience. And so I know that there's value in having these conversations on a one-to-one or one-to-many basis, but, you know, how do we move past the, the frustration, the anger, the sense of why is this happening to me and why didn't I know about this and move into to dialogue? I think you're right. It can be, you know, the feeling of 
hopelessness, of isolation, and also, you're right, of shame around not just talking about our bodies, but talking about our unwellness, you know, admitting to our need for rest, admitting to our need for care. These are things that, you know, when I was first diagnosed in like 2010, I grew up during kind of girl power, ladder culture, where we, you know, speaking about your body, you know, revealing that you're a human, who bleeds, who has pain, who hurts, who this was not part of the discussion about what it what womanhood was or feminism was. You know, these were not, it was all about sort of presenting this kind of, you know, Teflon partying, strong self. And I think that, you know, you're I really agree with you that I, you know, I took a long time to have to be in a space where I could talk publicly about my illness where I could kind of identify it with it as part of who I was I was very closed off from it I did feel a lot of shame about being unwell felt a lot of shame about having this chronic disease that was invisible you know as if I were taking up space from someone who was more unwell from someone who was disabled as if I was claiming something I couldn't but then when I found a, when I found meaning in what it meant to talk about and think about illness I found community in that and the first way I found community in that was historically was looking back and trying to find people like me who had been let down by medicine throughout history who felt to me I felt a kindred feel a sense of feeling with them I felt like you know this is a community across a, a genealogy of our women that I'm part of and if I can tell a little bit of their stories in order to help us, us all better understand why this is happening to us, then it felt a little bit like giving voice to them, even if they just appeared in a historical case study a little bit. And I think in terms of speaking about illness, I know that when I've done it in my you know, group of friends, that it's always been that point at which there's like a moment of release, like we can talk about this now. You know, we can talk about going to, gynecological procedures we can talk about what it means to occupy bodies that we feel sometimes ashamed of we can talk out and that sense that when you speak you're giving the you're creating space you're holding space and you're creating space for somebody else is really powerful and it can take a while to get there sometimes you have to sit with what illness means to you you know illness is unwellness it's so unique to everyone there's no one way of relating to illness or ill health and to sit with it and kind of figure out who you are with it is, is fully relates what you were saying. You know, you have to sort of find that space within you. And then once that's done, if you have the energy, if you have the, the strength, if you have the resources within you to be able to talk publicly or make work, or if that's artwork or podcast or book writing, or if you have it within you to do that, I feel like it's a really important thing to do. And if we can kind of structure our work and intention around mm -hmm. creating space for others, because not I'm really aware often when I talk about, you know, the importance of advocating for yourself, that not everyone has the privilege say of energy or the feeling that they want to talk about their bodies or even advocate for themselves when they're unwell. I realized that I can do it and therefore it's kind of, it's a responsibility, but it's also an honor to try and create the opportunity where others 
even just might want to send me a, a little note on Instagram saying, you know, I read your book, I have endometriosis. It's, you know, that is to me a massive privilege because I've got this kind of energy in me to do it. And that's how I feel. I feel like even if it's just creating a little opportunity. So it might be as small as joining, you know, a group on Instagram. There are some fantastic, incredibly radical illness communities on Instagram or even finding a Reddit or even if something just as small, a little bit of dialogue. Because, you know, I think it's really important that we do this. We kind of create these spaces of, you know, compassion and humanity and justice if we're able to do that. Well, I have loved this conversation and I'm so glad that you had the willingness and the resilience and the strength to put pen to paper, hand to keyboard, and really try to make sense of your experience and help us get context on on, on where we are. And, it, and it's, it's incredibly powerful. And I really hope that everyone takes the time to, to read this book. Well, thank you so much, Erica, for such a fantastic conversation. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for tuning into my chat with Eleanor Cleghorn. I hope you'll pick up a copy of her book, Unwell Woman. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.